Would you please turn in your Bibles to Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations, chapter 3. Take up the reading at verse 1. If you're using the church Bibles, then I'm sure you can hear that. 825 is the number. 825. It's a bold and uh, perhaps overly enterprising challenge to work our way through the book of Lamentations. So here we are, chapter 3. And we shall read the first 32 verses. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. This is Jeremiah speaking about the fall of the city and the people who are banished to an alien culture, demoralized and discouraged. Verse 2. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call, even when I call out and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his harrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He has broken my teeth with gravel and trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone. And all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering and the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind. Therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. And let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. 
so great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief on the children of men. Infinite compassion and that modern song. It's a good song and when we get it uh, in right and it was a good, <laughs> Rob, great attempt. Uh, and we'll have to revisit it so that we, the timing and everything um, is an excellent introduction uh, to this sermon. But we have to get through the dark bit first. And uh, this could be a, a little tricky. Uh, apart from one cross-reference we are sticking with the passage. So if you keep your Bible open, at least you'll be able to compare and contrast some of the things that, that I'm saying this morning. We are now halfway through uh, this book. And uh, as I said in uh, Cornerstone last Sunday, I'm poised to preach a lamentable sermon, literally. Uh, so let's have a quick outline for those who perhaps weren't here. It's a, it's, a, it's a book that's not so familiar, even to people who are regular at church, even uh, to uh, pastors and preachers as well. Uh, and the outcome of it um, will come to fruition, I'm sure, in due course. So chapter 1, the city speaks. Here is a city full of promise, privileged and blessed beyond measure. And now this Great city is lonely and groaning. And then chapter 2, the Lord speaks. And it's not a concept that we, certainly not the unchurched, have that God is angry and judging. And he is the judge of all the earth and whatever we say, he will do what is right. And we will know that. Thirdly, the prophet speaks, and that's what we are thinking about today, and how embarrassing. He is broken and he's crying. Jeremiah. They used to say years ago, didn't he? don't be a Jeremiah if you should cry. Uh, and um, fourthly, chapter 4, possessions speak. The, the, almost the, the neurotic obsession of the news for months and months and months. Possessions what we've lost, how it's going to be, and so on. And what does it say? It says that they are empty and ultimately unsatisfying. Ultimately. And I guess we are often challenged actually to believe that. And then finally, chapter 5, the captives speak, they are hungry and hurting. So that's where we're going, and now we're going to stay in, in chapter 3. The prophet speaks, broken and crying. Many of us, I know I was, brought up when, and certainly my parents, and I don't know about you, and that was a long time ago, of course, were, were told, um, big boys don't cry. It is not a manly thing to cry. Certainly not in public. Keep your tears to yourself. I think they were often spoken well intended. And yet, when you begin to live with and believe that tears are a sign of weakness, and some people even that tears are a sign of a lack of faith and an indication of the onset of depression, then it's best not to. Best not to. Don't cry. But the result of it 
or pr presumably the cumulative result of this, is this, that sorrow suppressed and suffering that is submerged beneath our subconsciousness does something to us. And I think at least it does these two things, and you need to think about this. If over a period of time you don't, or now you can't, express emotion in yourself, then in the course of time you can't and don't express emotion for others. You might feel it. We're talking about now expressing it. And sometimes that's all that we've got to go by. How do you articulate and express sorrow and grief to other people? Well, maybe you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I don't. Okay. Well, you live with that. But if everybody did that, where is the milk of human kindness? How do you cope in the trauma, in the difficulty, when life collapses around you like a pack of cards? To whom do you go? Well, here is the prophet, and he is expressing his emotion to himself and to others, and it's terribly embarrassing. Or is it? I suggest to you it's actually a, a healthy thing, and perhaps we're much wiser today that we realize that this needs to be expressed. Often, you, you know, take the, the issue of suppressed uh, bereavement. See it so much in funerals, believe me. But six months later, it surfaces and somebody says, you know, so-and-so's had a breakdown. If they, had, if, if they were able to release that emotion there. But it may be a, not their fault, I'm not portioning blame, just saying that these things happen. That there can be a healthy release. We're a bit like um, pressure cookers, aren't we? You need that release, otherwise something's going to explode. Our only cross-reference is in the book of Psalms. You can look it up if you want to. Uh, I'll just read it very quickly. Psalm 56 and verse 8. It says an interesting thing. It says this. Re record my lament. Uh, make a record, Lord, of my lament. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? What a strange thing. You'd want to say, wouldn't you? In life, I'd want God to take note of the, the good things I do. What are my tears? A, a, an authentic record of who I am and how I responded in given places when the book of life is unfurled as we stand before our Maker. The Lord's perspective then, whatever else we take from, from the sermon today, is so very different to ours. Before I went to junior school and early in Sunday school with, with a blind teacher who used to teach us, who was blinded through the steelworks, lost his eyesight, he used to say, I want you to learn one verse. I was only three. It's good going, isn't it? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Never forget that. Wherever you go, whatever you find, he is the Savior. He wept during the death of his friend and in the sorrow that he experienced. Jesus wept. And you take him with you in life. Well, we need teachers like that, don't we? Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. So here we have it. Infinite compassion. Just two things to say then. Uh, the first is this, chapter 30, 30, verses 1 to 21, is the cry of the afflicted. 
And then, secondly, the last section is verses 22 to 32, the compassion of the Lord. Just those two things. And see how they can uh, dovetail together in the course of, of the sermon. Okay. First of all, the cry of the afflicted. And what you see immediately, in the light of what we've been saying, is this. That this Jeremiah is no mere spectator, observer of human life. But he's he's involved completely in the whole trauma and drama of life and its tragedies and its inexplicable experiences. I am the man who has seen affliction, verse 1, by the rod of his wrath. He, God, has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. You say, does God do that? Well, I'm reading the Bible. Is our view of God ours? Or is it the one that we have in the Bible. Are we rewriting the nature of God? Indeed, verse 3, he has turned his hand against me again and again, all day long. Would you like a God like that? Well, there you are. He's afflicted. And of course, he's sometimes talking in the second person of the times. In the first, he's identifying. He's no observer of other people who are afflicted or his own. But he feels God's judgment. He says, God, you are just. And you are judging your people for their sinful ways. If you were to put together from verses 1 to 7, thereabouts, you'll have these words, anguish, bitterness, hardship, darkness, despair. Or verse 7 is a very vivid picture of, of being almost asphyxiated or being imprisoned. A feeling that the walls are closing in on you. Verse 8 and 9. What a thing to say. Prayer is futile. Prayer is just auto-suggestion. Just talking to yourself and it's wishful thinking. Come on, have you never had thoughts like that? Or do we come to church to pretend? So verse 8. Even when I cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. And then verses 10 to 11, he sees God. It's a very interesting description, isn't it? God as a bear ready to tear his prey and as a lion ready to pounce and devour. When did you last think about God being like this? And don't just say that's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. It's the one same God who sent his Son to be our Savior. It is one and the same. And finally, you have this, um, he summarizes his condition. There you have it in verse 18, and there it is. And, and, and it's quite poignant, isn't it? So I say, it's a summing up, verse 18, my splendor is gone. All that I had hoped for from the Lord dissipated. Of course, it might be the great city of Jerusalem, all of its splendor and its glory, devastated, laid waste. And now, in an alien culture, and he is rendered, and his people, and his religion, and his cause, persona non grata. Nothing. Well, there you are. That's pretty, pretty... That's something, isn't it? That is quite some affliction. But what we get now, so there I've painted the picture for you, what you get is a brief respite. Just stand back for a moment. 
Take a, take, take a deep breath. And in verses 19 to 21, this respite becomes the turning point. There's a switch here. And what is it? Well, it's two things. First of all, look in verses 19 to 20. The turning point is humility of soul. It's exactly the same as Paul was saying like this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who humbled himself. What a surprise. Humility of soul. Verses 19 and 20. I remember my affliction and my wandering the, my, and the bitterness and the gall. It may be a flashback to the, the, the 40 years of wandering of the people aimlessly. And verse 20, I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Is that what my life's going to be like? Like the children of Israel, just going round and round. No progress, nothing to show. No. That God humbles us in order to change us. And he asks God to remember his pain and suffering. Like the psalmist, put it in your ledger, Lord. Put it there. In perpetuity. And one day when I stand before you, I will understand. And meanwhile, perhaps through that, my faith will grow stronger. And the second thing that he has is hope in God. His situation was summed up as being hopeless. But look at verse 21. Yet this I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. You can't live without hope. It's the breath that we breathe. It's, it's the environment in which we live. I have hope. He recalls his vulnerable position. And yet he's got hope and encouragement. So that brings us then to the main theme. I, I was trying to think, how would you illustrate this part of Jeremiah, it's a bit like uh, people who um, mine and dig for gems. And they have to work hard. And, and the amount of um, residue that there is in contrast to a precious jewel. Well, we need to dig hard. And you find a gem sparkling in the darkness, in the despair. That's what you have here. So the compassion of the Lord and there are three things about the character of God that change. I've, I've made those suggestions to you. But what about three different ones? Well, here they are. In chapter 3, verses 22 to 32, these three facets of the character of God that we often forget in our trauma. The first is this, that God's love never fails. God's love never fails. It's never started and it cannot finish. It's eternal. It's outside of time. I know that sounds complicated, but that's what it is, essentially. And we are mere creatures of time for a brief moment and that impacts our lives. And something's begun in us that is outside of time, that will last time, and it is his love. God's love never fails. Of course life isn't fair. Of course people are difficult. Of course we are sinners. And if we're not, we ought to be well aware of it and repent of our sin. And what a good opportunity to do it now. Of course all of that is obvious, unless we are prepared to live in denial. But God's love is eternal. Eternal. And it 
impinges upon us at different times in different places. His love is eternal. And so we read in verse 22, because of God's great love for us, we are not consumed. For his compassion never fails. It has no beginning and no ending. We do, we are born and we die. But this love comes to us. And we are changed. And we ought to be. And we should repent of any that the, the smallest vestige of indifference to him. And what a mighty demonstration of his love that is, as we see it in the light of the coming of Jesus. His love never fails. Secondly, God's compassion never fails. His love never ends. His compassions never fail. And so again, verse 22, you see, that his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, every day. New every morning. Fresh love. Fresh grace. Fresh purpose for every situation in which we find ourselves. God's compassion never fails. I say to you, on the authority of the Bible and human experience, you may yet experience the dark night of the soul. I don't need to be clever or profound to say that. But there is a dawning of a new day. And God's compassion never fails, whatever our experience. Uh, it was interesting, yesterday I was at... Um, an Alpha Away Day and the theme of the Holy Spirit and uh, there was a prayer time and I was talking to what I assumed would be an elderly lady. She's probably in her late 70s and if that's elderly, okay. And I said, uh, are you okay? She said, oh yes. You see, she said, my, my husband died two, two years ago and I miss him so much. And the dark night of the soul isn't just, just a one-off thing that is okay and See, life is like that. It is like that. God's love never ends. And his compassions never fail. And they are new every day. Fresh every day. And verse 23, you see, is a reminder of that. They are new every morning. And this is what we're going to sing in a moment. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And it's this reminder that God's compassion for his people in the darkness of the cross and in the light of the resurrection, that's pretty dark and that's very light. And God is the same in both. In both. In the light and the dawning of resurrection day. You see, the truth is, yes, we are Good Friday Christians. The power of the cross. We are Easter Sunday Christians. The light of the resurrection. And we are all Pentecostal Christians in the power of the Spirit. And God is faithful in all of those. All of them. All of them. And the third and the last thing is this. That when we think about the compassion of the Lord, God's faithfulness never ceases. It never ceases. It might have begun at a certain time in our lives, for sure, but it was there before, and it will be there after. God's compassion never ceases. 
It never diminishes. And regardless of how untrusting and unworthy we are so often, and disobedient and stiff-necked as believers, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And people, of course, can do and say whatever they like, but this is the God that we deal with. And, and, and what a profound assurance that for us is unlimited grace. Trustworthiness. Steadfast love. So what then, just very quickly as we come to the Lord's table, what should be our personal application for this? What, what can we say about this? by way of taking this home with us. Not only impressions, but being clear what my response should be. Well, through our adversity, and they are different for different people, and we are all different and rightly so, the first thing we need to learn, and in our frenetic world, with pressures, and I guess for most of us, so much of the week is spoken for already. We need to wait hopefully. Wait hopefully. See verses 24 and 25. I say to myself, it's like a, a soliloquy, speaking to ourselves. It's perfectly right to do so. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait for him. I'm saying this to myself. I want to wait hopefully. This is the idea of just seeking the Lord prayerfully. It's not a sort of awaiting passively, but a kind of waiting that is seeking and expecting. And I think, and we're doing this now, the second thing we need to do is to listen quietly. Listen quietly. Look at, just let the passage speak for itself. Verse 26. It is good to wait quietly. That's a good thing to do. I think we all agree with that, but you just have to get down to doing it. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, that I might see him work in my day. Why? For God is good it is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. There are times and seasons of bearing additional burdens and responsibilities. Shirk them, and we grow into older age, immature and unhelpful. Take them when we're young, and it does something to us. We bear the yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And Jesus is the great comforter. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That sort of thing. Listen quietly. It obviously makes sense. Wait, hopefully. And this is the hardest one and the final one that we have to do because of our nature. We don't like this. We need to submit willingly. Submit willingly. Verses 31 and 32. Let me just read it. For men, for people are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief he will show compassion. 
So great is his unfailing love. And there you have it. In the middle of this lament, this profound sorrow, this darkness is light and, and joy and hope and peace and a future blessing. And even in affliction, hard though it is, God is abounding, abundant in compassion. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness.